What happened the first night that Plow in the Stars opened? I understand that's quite a story. Well, it is quite a story, but it's it's been recited so often that it's um, a bit tedious now. A twice told tale, you know? Yes. Fixing the dull ear of a drowsy man. That's what the story about the riots that took place in the theatre and the production of the Plow in the Stars is. It was just a violent reaction on the part of the nationalists that didn't like the critical nature of the play and assaulted the stage and attacked the actors. And the actors fought back and Yeats came out and denounced them all and said they, they had misbehaved themselves again <laughs> and finally called in the police because there was no possibility of quelling them. Disturbance, there were hundreds of people men and women even, trying to get onto the stage and pull the curtains down and wreck the place. Yeah. It wasn't an uncommon occurrence in Ireland. It occurred with Sing. Sing's play, before mine, the play by the Western world. And it occurred uh, in this old uh, 18th century theatre, Smock Alley, in Dublin, when the final end of that theatre was they set fire to all the chairs <laughs> and horns and the whole theatre went up in smoke and fire because they, they didn't like a play that was being produced. What is the background to the reason that you won't allow your place to be put on in Ireland now? There was a festival to be held in Ireland in 58 called Dantostal. It's an Irish Ward meaning gathering together for entertainment, you know, toaster. And uh, I had written a play at the time called The Drums of Father Ned, and the chairman of the committee of the council heard of it, and he asked me would I send it to him for consideration, and I said, well, I was very reluctant to do so, but after several hours I decided to let him see it. And I sent him the script, it was in manuscript at the time, sent him the script and he was delighted it was just the play he wanted to cap and crown the festival that was all right I was grieving to me and everything went on all right till a week before the or a couple of weeks before the toastal was to begin and suddenly the Roman Catholic Archbishop of Dublin publicly announced that he wouldn't permit any priest in his diocese to say a vote of mass for the Thorstall if any play by O'Casey or Joyce were produced during the event, during the festival. So that started all the pious people protesting. All the religious societies got up on their hind legs and demanded that the play be rejected and and uh, Joyce's play that was going to be done was to be thrown out. And the committee took fright and worked in such a way that I decided to withdraw the play. And because there was no protest made against the Archbishop's ban, I decided to ban all my plays in Ireland for the future, professional performances. And I've been banned ever since. I think that Ireland should have at Dublin, at least, should have protested against the Archbishop's ban on a play that, uh, a, a play of a dramatist that was an Irishman.
a damn sight better Irish than the Archbishop, because at least he knows the language of his country, which the Archbishop doesn't. Not only am I an Irishman, but I'm a Dublin citizen of Dublin. The play was to be produced in my own city. I think it was an impudent and an uncalled-for thing for him to ban a play written by me. One of my best plays. And a play that was hopeful and joyous and gay. There was nothing in it at all that anybody could object to. The hero, actually, is, a, is, is, is typical of the whole Catholic Church in Ireland, Father Nair. He's the dominant spirit in the whole play, urging the people to tidy up their towns, to paint their towns, to bring music to their villages, to bring art and literature everywhere that few Irishmen are gathered together. There can be nothing objectionable in that idea, can there? And that was the play he banned. Well, let him ban as much as he likes. I can live without the Archbishop's blessing. Do you think the Roman Catholic Church has too much of a control over Ireland? The Roman Catholic control, in my opinion, is too much damn control over the whole world. And there's a special and particular and dominant and absolute control almost over Ireland. Over the southern part of Ireland, that is, the Republic of Ireland. It hasn't got control over the northern province which is mainly a Protestant one, and very bigoted too. <laughs> one is just as bigoted as the other. They would protest against any play produced in Belfast that would have a laugh at a Protestant clergyman, I suppose, or any Protestant kind of practice. And the others would equally condemn and protest against a play criticizing the practices of the Catholic clergy. They're all the damn same. Wherever you get this dogmatic institutional religion, you get division, intolerance. It's only when people give up religion or the idea of religion altogether that you begin to get a bit of sense. <laughs> Fair dealing and decent living. The English people are completely indifferent to religion. At least nine-tenths of them are. In consequence, you can live in peace in England anywhere you go. They don't ask you what you are or where you go or what you believe. They don't care. What method do you follow when you're writing? For instance, do you compose on a typewriter? No, I don't compose on a typewriter. I write, I've written all my plays out in longhand. Not consecutively, not page by page in a copybook the way many dramatists have done but jotting down thoughts and... Uh, and I couldn't do that when I was working. Yes. You see, then it would be impossible for me to sit down unless I spent the whole damn night at it. I used to occasionally, at dinner hour, breakfast hour, I used to carry a kind of a book with me and jot down uh, thoughts and bits of dialogue that came into my head on the play that I was working at. And it might be the last scene, or it might be the third scene, it might be the first scene. And if I hadn't got the book with me, I'd look about for a scrap of paper and record them there before I went back to work. Then when I went home, I weaved them into the handwritten section of the play. And that was all done. It took me some years. It took me two, two years or so to write Juno. 
in many years to write The Flower and the Stars. And then I typed them roughly out on a typewriter and amended all that and changed it if I thought it changed necessary. And if I didn't like a phrase here, I took it out and put another in, so on, trying to improve it as much as I could. And then I did what I call the final draft, which was sent to the Abbey Theatre. But even, even then, when the draft came back and they were published, when I received the first galley proofs from the publisher, I went through that and sometimes I changed a little here and there or added a little phrase that had come into my mind that I thought were the recording. And that, I think, concluded the uh, writing of the play. But the play hadn't been written or wasn't written till the galley proofs were returned, corrected to the publisher. Then I considered the play written. And that took years of work. But how I was inspired by it, of course, is another thing. I was interested in everything that happened around me, and I'm interested still in everything that happens around me. Although I hadn't uh, what I would call keen sight that normal people have, I had a very keen sense of observation and that gave me keen sight for the little foibles and little gestures and little eccentricities of that individual and the other individual that I never forgot once I saw them. And I had a very acute ear, very acute ear for any little phrase that interested me. It remained in my mind. I, I usually added to it. Or I wove another completely different phrase from it. But these phrases that I heard and the things that I saw were recorded in my mind and uh, selected then, added to and changed to suit my own fanciful idea of what this character or that character might say in the play. It's a never-ending work. You must never separate yourself from life if you're going to write a play. You must be ready to hear everything and anything because you never know when a person may use an extraordinary and interesting remark that may be witty, unconsciously in most cases, but consciously to you. And you call that and you store it up and you may use it years afterwards. Your female characters, Juno, Nora, and, and Bessie, and others like them, they're always strong, and they seem to be trying to be a binding force in the family. Are these, are these typical of Irish women as you knew them? There are, there are thousands of Junos in the Irish slums. The Irish people are extraordinarily good and kind and generous and self-sacrificing among themselves, the working classes. If you visit the slums or lay you happen, there's no use of visiting the slums. You have to live among them to know. You can't know them any other way. It's impossible. And if you live among them, yeah. you will find that there are thousands of Junos helping each other, helping each other out in any difficulty, in any illness. And if they can't help you positively, they'll help you in other ways by sympathy and kind words. Juno is not an uncommon thing in the slum. But well, my own mother was a typical example of what a Juno could be. 
and what was. But there are many more like her in the slums. I knew hundreds of them. And I had always a profound respect and regard for them, toiling through life under tremendous difficulties and keeping a bright heart among it all. You were very close to the poet William Butler Yeats. What sort of a man was he? He was romantic about Ireland and his poems, and I think romantic about Ireland in his plays. But he wasn't so romantic uh, about Ireland in the real issues of life that surrounded him and that confronted him. For instance, he wasn't very romantic when he stood on the Abbey stage denouncing the rioters in the Abbey Theatre on the night of the production of the, the Plough and the Stars. He was quite realistic. Yes, could be intensely realistic in dealing with the problem. Why did he write so differently from what he uh, felt in, in a practical sense? Then? He had been influenced, of course, by the old Irish saga, the old Irish mythical stories of kings and queens, and he wrote very beautifully about them. And he, he was a very great poet. Everybody, I think, admits that Yeats was a great poet, as far as I know. A few are being, beginning to question his his authenticity, or whatever you call it, as a poet. But I think Yeats and most literary men seem to agree that Yeats was an extraordinarily great poet. But Yeats, as well as being a great poet, was a great man. He was an extraordinary individual. And I don't think Ireland uh, would get his like again for many uh, a long year. Anything equal to the great Yeats. And uh, Ireland is, uh, once Yeats died, the Abbey Theatre died with him. The Abbey Theatre has never been anything like the Abbey Theatre that Yeats and Lady Gregory, of course, uh, led and guided. It has become now a mean, vulgar, commonplace uh, exhibition of itself. I think the Abbey Theatre, I think God Almighty had a hand in um, obliterating the Abbey Theatre when he set fire to it, when it went up in, in flames. Oddly enough, while the stars and stripes were being produced in it. It was reduced to ashes. And the Abbey Theatre, we knew, it is no, no more now. There's not, a, there's not even one of the foundation stones left. They're going to erect this new great theatre costing £250,000 that will be a fine building I'm sure the necessity that a theatre needs is a play and where are they going to get them there's nobody writing plays worth a damn in Ireland now 